Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Hello and welcome to Adam Ruins Everything, the podcast. I am your host, Adam Conover. Here's what the podcast is for my first-time listeners. I do a TV show on True TV. It's an educational comedy show called Adam Ruins Everything. And on that show, I talk to fascinating guests, experts in fields from across the realm of human knowledge. But on the show, I only get to talk to them for a couple minutes. On the podcast, I bring them into the studio and we talk to them at length about all the fascinating uh, topics and ideas that they have to offer us. Um, We bring their awesome but academic and maybe sometimes kind of dry and difficult to access work to you in a light, fun, podcast setting. At least that's what we attempt to do. And at the very least, I get to satisfy my curiosity about all of the incredible work that they do. And by the way, in case you were wondering, and I know a lot of people are, Adam Ruins Everything is coming back to True TV starting August 23rd. We got 14 big episodes coming at you all through the rest of the year. And you can also find clips and full episodes at TrueTV.com slash Adam Ruins Everything and the Watch True TV app. But What are we doing today? Today's guest is Professor Donald Shoup, who appeared on the Cars episode of the show. Donald is a distinguished research professor in the Department of Urban Planning at UCLA, but more importantly, he is well known as America's foremost parking guru. Now, you might be saying to yourself, parking guru, that sounds like a boring thing to be. But in fact, and take my word for it, it is fascinating. Donald's work is like revolutionized uh, the field of parking research. Again, a real field that he, in fact, revolutionized. This guy is a... Uh, this guy is renowned in the world of urban planning, urban development. Uh, the people who are designing our cities to look the way that they're going to look uh, revere this guy's work. Um, and when you think about it, parking drives everyone crazy, right? Like apart from owning the car, having to buy the car and fuel the car and being stuck in traffic, parking is definitely the worst part of the whole car thing, right? At least it's up there. I would say it's tied for first place with the other five things that are terrible about driving cars. But parking is... In general, such a frustrating thing. There's never a parking space. you got to pay for it. You're, you're subject to a fine. Um, and what Donald's research shows is the way that we handle parking in this country is totally wrong. Almost every city is screwing it up big time uh, for fascinating reasons. So we're going to hear all about him in this episode. Let's get to the interview. Thank you so much for being here, Donald. Well, thanks for inviting me and for giving me free parking. <laughs> Yeah, well, it is provided by by the building. It's a bit of a parking, ironically, a bit of a parking nightmare outside this building today because there's a street fair going on. And so there's guys waving sticks and like, you know, $10 parking signs and stuff like that. Uh, so it, this and this is one of those areas that coming to anyway, drive to, I'm always a little bit stressed out about finding a place to park. Uh, a very common experience for people in LA. Let me, let me ask you this to, to start out. Did you... Uh, end up researching park like you live in LA. Did you end up researching parking because you live here and you were so frustrated by it, or did you start researching parking and then saying, "Well, I gotta go to where the parking is at. I gotta go to Los Angeles." Well, I don't think it was either one of those. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I lived here in LA when I 
I think my first publication about barking must have been 1976. Wow. And, uh, but it wasn't because I was in L.A., although the, um, uh, the example I used was definitely L.A. L.A. Mm-hmm. is a great place to study parking. I can imagine. Uh, I feel like I study it every day, frankly, living here. <laughs> well, I think in an ideal world, you wouldn't even think about parking. Just right. as you don't think about uh, most of the things that you worry about, the things that you're going to buy or that you have to do. Uh, I think the the best parking is the parking when people aren't talking about it. Right. Um, but, but it's it's something that, that gives people such stress generally, um, not just finding it, but but people almost sort of have anxiety about parking spaces being taken away or there's too much, you know, like when there's new development, people say, oh, that's going to it's going to ruin my, you know, my parking situation or, or whatever. And ends up being this big this big anxiety. And and honestly, the reason we initially contacted you when we did our cars episode was to us, it seemed like this big unexamined downside of car culture that, you know, not only do we have to buy these things and learn how to pilot them around (laughs) without killing each other, which is that's enough stress and pay for insurance and everything. We also have to figure out where to keep these enormous. Everyone has a two ton, Mm -hmm. 10 foot long metal object that they have to store somewhere and they have to figure out where to store it every time they take a trip. It's sort of a bizarre uh, you know, burden to put on people. Well, I think almost everybody thinks about parking as a personal issue and not as a policy issue hmm. or not an urban planning issue. And I think because you think only as a consumer <laughs> as or as a driver uh, that you – when you enter any kind of political – Arena, you say we need more parking. I mm-hmm. mean, we everybody wants to park free, including me. But that doesn't mean that uh, free parking should be a, a, a basic policy of urban planning or public finance or transportation planning, because free parking conflicts with almost all the other goals of urban <laughs> planning or. Uh, right. Transportation or, or even public finance. So so explain to us why, because your your famous book is called The High Cost of Free Parking, which is a perfect sort of Adam ruins everything counterintuitive topic. Free parking, this thing that everybody thinks should be good. I don't know if you know the, the TV show South Park. It's even a line in the theme song. Ample parking day or night. It's like, what could be better than free parking? Thank God if you find some, mm-hmm. right? But there's a huge downside to it. Free parking isn't actually something that we want. And I know this is I'm asking you to summarize many decades of work uh, in a few sentences, but wh- why is that? Well, I think because we want parking to be free, and it's it's a good it's a political goal in many places. You know, council mm-hmm. members can't say to someone like you, uh, when there's a building being built next door that doesn't have enough parking, that well, suck it up. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> that that uh, they have to uh, listen to their constituents. And one of the biggest motivations in parking planning is council members who who never want somebody to telephone and say, "How did you let this happen?" Ah, yes. That. Uh, so their goal in, in parking policy is to make sure that nobody ever complains to them <laughs> that, that there's not enough parking. And that's why we have very high parking requirements, so that any new building like this one has to uh, come with uh, often as much parking as there is space for everything else in the building. 
In fact, that uh, most people, at least who live in the, in the cubicle world, their their car has much more space than they do. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's more space for cars than there is for humans in most new buildings. So I think that because politically it, it's so popular to have free parking, it's hard for any politician to think seriously, well, maybe we should do things a little bit differently. Do it the way they do it in in New York or San Francisco, at least in downtown, where instead of requiring parking, they limit it. Mm-hmm. Uh, say for uh, a concert hall downtown, like Disney Hall in L.A., that's uh, quite iconic. Um, it has, uh, I think, 2,200 parking spaces. Wow, 2,200 underneath the concert hall. Uh, six levels of underground parking. Wow. You take an escalator cascade up from your parking garage straight into the lobby. So you never set foot on the sidewalk. But for the uh, same concert hall in, in, in San Francisco, Louise Davies Hall, uh, they have no parking attached to the concert hall. The, when the concert is over, you, when you leave the, the auditorium, the sidewalks are bustling with people. All the right. bars are open. They're and going, the, those people are going to restaurants. They're, that's right. They're going out for drinks. They're, they're stopping and buying a piece of art from the guy on the sidewalk who's doing paintings or whatever. That's right. And if you, uh, if you drove, you have a, a walk to get to your car mm-hmm. uh, if you drove. In L.A., the city's – L.A.'s requirement uh, for a concert hall – L.A. requires 50 times more parking as a minimum than San Francisco allows as the maximum. Wow. So the two two cities are not different just because it happened, uh, but because it was planned that way. Hmm. Uh, At L.A., we built the the parking structure for for, uh, Disney Hall seven years before we started Disney Hall on top of it. Really? Because we we needed extra money to finish uh, Disney Hall. And the uh, the funding gap that they were trying to close was smaller than what they had spent on the garage. Wow! So, so I, I think you know parking is the number one concern in L.A. and it's uh, it, it would be hard for most politicians to say, well, we'll build um, uh, a Disney Hall without any parking, even though there's plenty of parking all around it. Yes. Uh, Downtown L.A. has more parking spaces per square mile than any other city on earth. Wow. Uh, and yet people think there's not enough. I mean, when you think of yeah. L.A., there's a lot of surface parking and a lot of very uh, tall parking structures. And every new building like Disney Hall has, has more space devoted to underground parking than to the interior of Disney Hall. So it's, uh, I think, what downtown would most people like to go to? Uh, downtown L.A. or yes. downtown San Francisco? Well, that's what – yeah, when when uh, people talk about which which cities they enjoy sort of being in, it's always the ones that are very walkable that, uh, you know, it's maybe hard to get into. But, you know, then once you're there, you can stroll from block to block and, and parking. I mean, I think the – I forget what the number is now, but but I think, uh, you know, part of what we were getting at in our cars episode was the amount, the sheer amount of space that's devoted to parking ends up blighting downtowns because it's this sort of uh, economic desert, right? It's like that it becomes this huge area in which there's nothing fun to do. There's no money to be spent. There's no art or commerce to engage in. There's simply we're storing a lot of a lot of cars while they're asleep. Um, and it ha- creates that effect in 
I mean, when I moved to L.A. from New York, I had the sense of always feeling very tiny because <laughs> when I go anywhere, you know, my joke is like, you know, you're like you get out of your car and you're like, I think I see the In-N-Out Burger like a mile away. <laughs> uh, like you're there, but you're still so far away from where you're going. And God help you if you want to go to the next business down the street. It, you're, you're, you might you can walk a quarter mile before you get to the next one. Well, that's right. In some of our parking lots, I think you can see the curvature of the earth. <laughs> It's like, oh, is that is that Christopher Columbus's ship surrounding the, <laughs> the the edge of the Home Depot, or is it? <laughs> um, uh, you also make a point about uh, not just minimum parking requirements for developments, but literal free parking spaces on the street. Am I am I right about that? But- well, that's right. They're they're highly linked. That uh, if the, if the park is free on the street, it's uh, it would be. Uh, very damaging <laughs> to your idea of the neighborhood if they built a uh, a new restaurant without any off street parking because mm-hmm. uh, all the patrons would park on in front of your house or in right. front of your business or something like that. So if the curb parking is free, uh, cities almost have to require off street parking, or else ah. there just wouldn't all the curb parking would be filled up. And people would say, there's no parking, mm-hmm. uh, by which they mean all the spaces are full. And so the free parking on the street incentivizes requiring all of this off-street parking, but then that parking is blighting the neighborhood because it's all this unused space. That's a great way to say it. I mm-hmm. think that who wants to walk by a parking lot or the facade of a parking structure? You know, all the things you come to downtown for <laughs> are are damaged by having to pass a lot of surface parking lots. Right. And there are cars driving across the sidewalk getting to and from the parking. Right. I think – uh, one of the most uh, walkable cities in, in California, or, or even the world, is Carmel, California. I've never been. Uh, Sounds lovely. People come from all over the world to walk around uh, Carmel, and they <laughs> prohibit any off-street parking. Really? They don't want any cars driving across the sidewalk. They want all the interiors of blocks to be for art galleries and restaurants and things like that. And, and the Parking is on the periphery of the downtown, hmm. but they don't allow any off-street parking downtown because they think that detracts from the reason you go to a walkable neighborhood. Uh, whereas some cities, um, well, San Francisco does it. They they uh, prohibit uh, surface parking lots mm-hmm. uh, for more than two years. If you tear down a building, you can't use it as a surface parking lot for more than two years. Hmm. If you don't build something, it has to be empty. So I think uh, uh, when you think of the whole city, uh, there are a lot better ways to, to plan and manage them than we do in in L.A., in most cities of the U.S., and now more countries around the world are, are following us. They say, well, the, the Americans know how to deal with cars. You know, they've had them longer <laughs> than we've had them. They're adapting our bad habits. Uh, they, definitely. They're copying them. Oh. Uh, there's also a phenomenon where, uh, and uh, correct me if I've got it wrong, this is my uh, my chewing it up and spitting it out back out at you, dumb, dumb version <laughs> of your work, so, so I, uh, forgive me, but um, where... A problem with free parking spaces, and I've done this myself in L.A., is that if you know that there's unmetered parking or there's cheap parking, you know, or say you're driving downtown and you see the place that's, you know, 10 bucks and you can park right there, you say, well, I'm just going to go drive around the block because maybe I'll go up that residential street. Maybe there's an unmetered spot I can go grab. Mm -hmm. And the existence of those spaces causes traffic, correct? Because you have lots of people driving around and around. 
That's right. People have been studying this for a long time. The uh, The first study that was done was appropriately in Detroit in 1927, and they uh, looked at uh, cars circling blocks in, in downtown Detroit in two locations. I think in one area they estimated that uh, uh, 18% of the cars were hunting for parking, and in another area something like you know 25%. Uh, 25% of the traffic was just people looking for a place to park. That's right. They've already arrived. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> they finished their trip. They're uh, where they're trying to go, but they're still on the street. That's right. And the uh, and the the curb parking was more than a hundred percent filled because people park in the red zones and things like that. But that kind of study has been done in various ways. In, uh, in one city in Germany, the German Automobile Association set up TV um, cameras or uh, video cameras taking uh, movies of the cars uh, in traffic, and they would, could follow it by looking at the license plates because they were hmm. one at every intersection. Hmm. And they found that 68% of the cars were hunting around because they could go back, and they after a car had parked, they could say, well, where had that car been before? Ah. And how much of the traffic was cruising for parking? And I think... Uh, uh, there have been another uh, various ways to do it. In, in in New York, one study interviewed drivers who were stopped at traffic lights and mm-hmm. said, are you hunting for curb parking? Yeah. And uh, in one Brooklyn neighborhood, it was 45% of the drivers said yes. Wow. And uh, in, in a street in Manhattan, it's something like 28%. Wow. I mean, that's at least one way to, you know, because, again, people are so precious about their parking. If you were to say to people, hey, we're, we got to get rid of this free parking, and they say, what? No, I need it. But if you say, well, it'll stop the traffic, that's like maybe the only thing worse than looking for a parking place space is being stuck in traffic. So hopefully that's at least a rhetorical way to get people on your side with the uh, issue. I don't think it helps. No. <laughs> well, it, it, what I do have, uh, what, what I would say what would help. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is uh, – and this is beginning to happen uh, around the world uh, – is that uh, if you tell a neighborhood uh, that if we put in parking meters and charge the right price, by which I mean the lowest price you could charge and still have one or two open spaces on every block, mm-hmm. so that when everybody drives around, it will be great parking karma that when you get where you're going, you'll see an open space waiting for you. Right. Uh, well, so if you charge that price, it'll vary by time of day because demand varies by so, time so of day. So this is, this is a, like a dynamic price that, where there's a computer looking at how many spaces are open and they're saying we're going to find just the right price so that enough people will be disincentivized from parking there that there's always going to be a couple spaces open. That's right. They don't change the price from minute to minute, but mm-hmm. they, they, they set different prices at different times of day and on different blocks and they adjust them once a month or something to, to nudge the price up on crowded blocks and nudge them down on on half-empty blocks. But with that money, you tell the neighborhood, we'll spend all the revenue to pay for added public services on your street. Mm -hmm. It won't disappear to the general fund. We'll fix all your sidewalks. Say Pasadena um, is one of the first cities to do this. In Old Town Pasadena, well, you're too young to know, but it used to be a a commercial skid row. And Mm. now it's one of the most popular tourist destinations. uh, Yes. uh, Not just tourists, but places for people in the rest of Los Angeles to go to. Yes. But it was was, people thought it was derelict. It would never recover. But it had... uh, Wonderful buildings in terrible condition. Mm-hmm. It was it was a great commercial center in the 1920s, and then 
with almost no off-street parking. And then uh, in the 30s, of course, there was the Depression, then World War II. And then uh, after that, a lot of, everybody had cars, and it didn't work as a commercial area mm-hmm. anymore with no parking. So people went to malls, and it kept decaying. The buildings were still great, but most of them were empty above the ground floor. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, nobody knew what to do until finally it was proposed. It came from the, the, the city saying, if we put in parking meters, oh, yes, they had proposed parking meters. And the merchants said, there were few remaining merchants that said, no, it'll chase away the customers we have. It had have. been free before, and they said it was It was free with a two-hour limit. But when they did studies, they found almost all the spaces were occupied by either the store owners or their employees who moved their car every two hours Uh and and complained about (laughs) they didn't have any parking for their customers. Right. So the city wanted to put in parking meters, and the merchant said, no way, it'll chase away the few customers we have, until finally the city said, all right, if we put in the parking meters, we'll spend all the money on fixing the sidewalks and the alleys and the the, – uh, public infrastructure in old Pasadena, and like that, they said, "Well, that's different. Why yes. didn't you tell us that? Let's run the meters till midnight. Let's run them on Sunday. Let's charge a high <laughs> price." The only thing that changed was if we put in the parking meters, you will get all the revenue to fix your terrible sidewalks, yes. like we have in much of LA, uh, and to clean up your your filthy alleys, and to put in historic street lights and street furniture. And they uh, got instant uh, buy-in from all the merchants and property owners. So what they did, I think it was very smart, you could borrow money against parking meter revenue. So they started out by borrowing $5 million to rebuild all the sidewalks and to clean up the alleys. Uh, saying that this amount of revenue is going to come in from the parking meter, so that's why we get the loan. Is We'll pay it back over. That's and right. And you'll see benefits right away. Mm-hmm. As soon as the meters go in. Because they they take that loan and boom, they fix the That's sidewalks. right. Wow. And so uh, they did everything a city could do to make the area look good. They put in, uh, rebuilt all the sidewalks. They put in new street trees with beautiful cast iron street, yep. uh, tree grades. They put in historic light fixtures. And uh, now that area is revitalized. That's right. And as soon as that happened, all the property owners realized this was going to be a premier place. And they began restoring their buildings, which is very expensive, mm-hmm. uh, restoring a historic building. It didn't pay before because the rents wouldn't mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> recover the cost of the restoration. And so the combination of the public sector doing what only the public sector can do and yes. the private sector following along with what it could do led to it, the um, an immediate increase in sales tax revenue. You, know, wow. you can't say that parking meters are going to hurt the area <laughs> if you spend the meter money in the area because the parking uh, meters – they earned uh, about a one and a half million dollars a year, mm-hmm. uh, and the I think the debt service on the bonds was only about four hundred thousand a year. So they had about a million dollars a year to spend on. They steam cleaned the sidewalks every two weeks. They sweep them every night. They remove graffiti every night. They, this, is, this is blowing my mind because we really don't – parking is not something that people ever think about. But by a change, this sort of small change in parking policy, you can transform this entire block. That's not just block. It's about a 15-block area. Wow. And, uh, 
And giving it to the uh, the local block makes so much sense because something that people say all the time in L.A. and I'm sure other places they say this as well is, oh, the parking enforcement they just do that to make money for the city. They those parking tickets are just going to you know pad some coffers somewhere we don't know where. Uh, people which is say, true. Yes, <laughs> that's true. So the conspiracy theory is correct. That is like, well, they don't need to sweep the streets that often. It's just mm-hmm. a revenue source for the city. Yada yada, but. If that money was going to – if I knew that when I got a ticket for street sweeping or when I put money in the meter that it was going to my block, I would not feel so cynical about it. Well, I I think it's different from that. I think it the people who are putting the meter – the money in the meters are not the people who work there. That's see, true. See, it's for visitors from outside of Pasadena. Mm-hmm. And when they get there and they, uh, they uh, get out of their car into a, a, a beautifully clean area with very handsome street furniture and they put their money in the meter, they don't know where the money goes. Yes, I see. But they're not important politically. As somebody who lives in Glendale is of no political importance in Pasadena, True. but somebody who owns a store there yes. or lives there or owns property there, they're the ones who count in the political game. And they're the ones who can see this is not tax money. Mm-hmm. You know, This is money mainly paid by visitors. Yes. Uh, visitors who think they're getting a good deal. Uh, and when you put your, your money into a parking meter in Pasadena, I think it said uh, uh, your meter money goes to uh, clean sidewalks, clean streets, safety and security, mm-hmm. something like that. They do something similar in, in, in San Diego, and the meters say turning small change into big changes. Ah, that's nice. See, it is a small amount of money. You can't claim it's a big deal if you have to spend a dollar an hour on a parking meter. But when it all adds up from yes. everybody who's paying that, it can make a big difference. Let, and, and excuse me, getting back to your question, yes. that's what creates the desire to charge the right price for parking. Not the fact that it will do cruising or air pollution or climate uh, <laughs> change. <laughs> right. See, all these things are important, but it doesn't have much clout in the Pasadena City Council or any other city council. You have to tell people this is what – we're going to do with the money. You will be better off. And who has any uh, influence on parking policy in a particular neighbor? It's the people who live there and work there and own property there. <laughs> right. Well, we are here talking to Professor Donald Shoup. We'll be back in just a moment, so stick around. Why would you listen to a podcast of TV pilots that never got made? It must not have been any good, right? I don't know for a fact that anyone read it. They couldn't get the deal done. It was kind of a regime change. Someone at the studio who was in a decision-making capacity said, these guys seem like losers. They just blamed it on, okay, well, it must be women. We got word that USA had decided to stop doing comedy. Why aren't we making this? It was so good. Hear the TV comedies you never got to see on the Dead Pilot Society podcast. Listen on MaximumFun.org or wherever you download podcasts. Welcome back to Adam Ruins Everything, the podcast. I'm here talking to Professor Donald Shoup, who appeared on the Cars episode of Adam Ruins Everything. 
just sort of a more general question. I feel like a big part of uh, American car culture is that our use of the roads um, and you know the parking spaces should be free. People sort of have this idea that that they that they need it and it's owed to them. I'm thinking about when I lived in New York and Bloomberg was putting in bike lanes here and there, and people, you're taking away our parking spaces. Oh, you, we need we need the parking spaces. That's that was the voice they had New York accents. We need them. You know, um, but uh, there's also I, you know, I think I think I encountered when I was encountering your work the idea that, you know, w- people need to pay for the space that they're using. That we ha- that it's that's sort of odd to have an expectation that that one could store one's car someplace for free. Uh, is that a, a component of it or? Well, it's not an odd expectation. We've been doing it for a hundred years. Yes, uh, since before <laughs> we were all born, and it's it's hard to say. Uh, to do it differently. And that's why it's taken me a long time. I think I was working on the book for maybe 30 years. Wow. Uh, and 800 pages long. <laughs> but but as you rightly pointed out, you can summarize it very quickly. And I think that we have uh, gone through the points that I'd like to make. There, there are three things. I think if they work together, please, um, it'll, it'll be revolutionary. One is to charge the right price for curb parking mm-hmm. so that there are always one or two open spaces there. Uh, second, spend all the meter money on the blocks where it's collected so the residents will see the, the, the benefits of the meters. And they're, they're not thinking about climate change. They're thinking about the fact that my fi- sidewalk is safe and clean. Right. Uh, but, but it also helps reduce, like, emissions and traffic and all those other things. That, of course, from a bigger policy point, that's a much more important thing. But for a local political yes. <laughs> influence. So the, get the right price for curb parking. Spend the meter money on the... Uh, the major streets to make it popular. And third, then you can remove the off-street parking requirements. Because nobody can say we have to have tons of off-street parking if wherever you go, you see one or two spaces open. Mm -hmm. See, so then it doesn't mean that the developers wouldn't put in parking. Mm-hmm. It just means the city wouldn't be telling them how much to put in. Or require, in order to get permission to build a, you know, uh, an apartment building with 10 apartments, we no longer say you have to include 20 parking spaces. Got it. We just – you decide how many parking spaces to put in. Maybe 10 is enough mm-hmm. uh, if the people pay for it. Say that the, the parking would no longer be free. But it would be available, and it would be paying for a lot of things that we all want. And if you it would be priced appropriately, I yeah. think so. And and the biggest, uh, well, all the, the, there'd be great benefits from all of them. But if we get rid of the minimum parking requirements, then a lot of the empty lots downtown that are now parking lots could be developed for something else. It, right. Now, on a lot of surface parking lots in downtown and in other cities. It's hard to put a building and all the required parking on a small site mm-hmm. at the same time. Yes. And that means it just stays a parking lot. So, yes. But if you said well, you could have a building with no parking or a building with five parking spaces or something like that, uh, then they say, oh, I see what you mean. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think we have the, uh, the biggest proof of this happened in downtown L.A., it's nice to talk about uh, some good things that LA is doing. <laughs> that uh, I think they're making some progress. We had <laughs> we had Salita Reynolds on. She talked about a lot of wonderful things they're doing in transportation in LA generally. So they're they're moving the needle. But what's this? I doubt if she needle? mentioned parking. Yeah, she didn't mention parking. No, that's not quite. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, uh, downtown LA is said to have the largest collection of intact office buildings from the 
early 20th century in the country. Interesting. There are some great old office buildings yes. on Spring Street, uh, Broadway. Spring Street used to be called Wall Street of the West. Huh. There were a lot of finance uh, uh, buildings there. The, the, the Los Angeles Stock Exchange was there. But then the city uh, said that we had urban renewal money from the federal government as we bulldozed everything on, on Bunker Hill and built new buildings and sucked the life out of that area because all the new Class A office buildings with air conditioning and, and plenty of parking were on Bunker Hill. So these, these very large buildings, often 10, 15 stories high, emptied out above the ground floor. The, huh. the, most of them were empty above the ground floor. The ground floor was very active with uh, commerce, especially the Latino community. Yes. Uh, and nobody could convert the buildings into housing because they didn't have the required parking. See, huh. L.A. requires two spaces per condominium unit for, for any <laughs> condo building. <laughs> and the, assuming any condo is going to have two drivers owning their own cars right. at a minimum. Uh, that's right. That's crazy. And if, if everybody does have two parking spaces, <laughs> there probably will be two cars yes, uh, and yeah. two drivers. But uh, it was a, uh, a very smart urban planner, Alan Bell, came up with the idea we should allow the conversion of distressed historic office buildings into housing without any new parking. Mm -hmm. uh, there were other features of the, of the policy. It's called the adaptive reuse ordinance. You could adapt an old building to a new use, and only housing. And uh, the uh, critics said, oh, this will be a disaster, that no lender would lend for the conversion of uh, an office building into housing without new parking. Uh, nobody would buy a condominium without two parking spaces. No mm -hmm. bank would lend for that. It'll be a disaster. All the only disaster that could happen is that nothing would happen. Right. But uh, the critics were proved wrong. And in, in the eight years after this ordinance was adopted, I think it was in 1999, 57 historic office buildings were converted from empty, <laughs> empty yeah. racks to wonderful new condominiums with something like 7,000 apartments. And just think of the number of people that employed all the plumbers and electricians right. and the architects and the drywallers and the, uh, and the urban planners <laughs> and, and the housing it provided. And it has led to a rebirth of that area. A lot of people live down yeah. there now. Oh, yeah. Well, that's the story of, you know, when I moved to L.A., it's like, oh, downtown is booming. It's coming back, you know, and it's, and it's because of this change. It wouldn't have happened, I think, without this simple change that you, could, you can convert uh, an, an empty office building, a historic office building, into housing without any new parking. And I think that it worked well enough. They've extended it to other parts of town, this part of town, and Salau as well. And there have been some amazing conversions here. And a lot of people, they don't know that there was any history to this. Uh, they just think, well, isn't this nice? Uh, mm -hmm. and so it, it converted another skid row into a very, a, a very wonderful place. And right. it's, it, it saved a lot of historic buildings. They, they survived because they were too big to tear down and too expensive to tear down, uh, but they would have fallen down. Uh, <laughs> but it saved a lot of historic buildings, and they were beautifully preserved. The Eastern Columbia Building is a famous example yes. with its blue terracotta for, uh, surfaces. And uh, it also saved an entire historic district. Yeah. 
See, if it all happened and suddenly they were all being converted into housing, then there were restaurants for the people there. And, and you can't say it was it was uh, uh, reducing the amount of affordable housing because they were empty office buildings. Yes. Now, all those people who are suddenly in that space, I mean, if they haven't added any parking, is there now a parking calamity in that in that neighborhood, or are those Not people taking all. public transportation, or no, what are they doing? Most of them have cars, but yes. they have to pay for parking. As ah. I said, there's more parking per square mile in downtown L.A. than any other city on earth. Right, so it's already there. You just have to pay for it. You yeah. just have to pay to park your car. And I think that's the way it ought to go. I ought to pay for my parking, and you ought to pay for your parking. Yes. Uh, because if, if I park free, somebody else has to pay for it. Right. And that's somebody Someone's is, paying for it somewhere down the line. And that, that somebody is everybody, including people who are too poor to own a car. <laughs> That's true. It's true. Their taxes are paying for, for our car ownership. Um, well, and, and, and even when they're paying for their car ownership it, or, or their parking, it can be a problem. Uh, I recently did some research that finally uh, you, you see what gets to people. Something gets a lot of, uh, of uh, attention. And one very simple thing, I estimated the cost of building a parking space in, in 12 uh, cities in the U.S. for which I had data. That's just an average cost. So for a, a parking structure like the one in this building, where I just parked free, it's about twenty-four thousand a space. Twenty-four thousand dollars a space. That's right. And for a, uh, a an underground structure like a Disney Hall, the average is thirty-four thousand. Wow. At Disney Hall, it was fifty-two thousand. But but on average, because that's very gold-plated with the with the right. cascade of escalators yes. and things like that. Yes. But uh, so twenty-four thousand and thirty-four thousand. Well, how are we really able to pay for this? So I looked at the data on the median net wealth of the United States. Your net wealth would be all your assets minus all your liabilities. Mm -hmm. So for the uh, Latino population, the median net wealth is uh, $7,000. And for a black population, it's about $6,000. So we are requiring parking spaces that these people have to use that cost far more than their net wealth. That you, yes, and that uh, a lot of people have z- negative net wealth. Right, that uh, they, they they owe more than they have assets. Yeah, uh, so especially young students who have a lot of college debt. Uh, they have human capital, but not but not something they can cash in on. So we're requiring them also to help pay for all this parking. And, and that also puts me in mind of what you said about how we have the line from the show is we have. A free, we have expensive housing for people and free or cheap parking for cars. And That's that, right. Our priorities are backwards in that. That's way. right. But the free parking has to come from someplace. Yes. Uh, and I think that uh, just because you're a, a low income minority who's parking free in a building, it doesn't mean you're not paying for it. Yes. You're st- it, it's still it, coming out of your pocket somehow. If you're an, an employee, say, uh, of a firm in this building that gives you free parking rather than cash income, mm-hmm. <laughs> that uh, it would be better, I think, if if the person rode a bike and uh, I got a higher salary. And that's, I guess there's a fourth policy that I recommend, but it's not like the first three. The first three are charge the right price for curb parking. Second is spend the revenue in the parking benefits right. district. Third is re- remove minimum parking requirements. But the fourth was the uh, thing that initially interested me is that um, the, the, the most common fringe benefit in the United States uh, is uh, free uh, employee parking. 
Yes. Uh, something like that. 95% of everybody who drives to work parks free when they get there. Yeah, you just think of, you don't even think of it as a fringe. You're just like, well, the, I need to have a place to park. How would I get to work? That's right. It's my employer's. Uh, do I have to pay to go to work? So the, the proposal I made for that, and it did get enacted into a state law, is that if anybody, say, in this building, has employees and they have to rent parking spaces from the building owner. You know, it isn't as though the employer gets the parking free. They have mm-hmm. to pay the the, the landlord mm-hmm. for parking. And say in Century City, that I know a lot about, it's all about two hundred and fifty a month. But if you come to work for me, I'll give you free parking. And and it's a tax exempt fringe benefit. So the federal government says it's a lot better for for me if I get my two hundred and fifty dollars as a free parking yes. than if I get two. 250 in cash because I have to pay Social Security taxes. I have to pay income taxes. Exactly. The employer has to pay payroll taxes. So the new law is that if your employer rents parking and, and offers it to you free, the employer has to offer you the cash alternative if you prefer cash. Ooh, I like that. So if I want to take, uh, rather than a free parking space, I'd rather have 250 a month. I could take that. I'd have to pay taxes on it, yes. income taxes. But then you can take a bike to work. I could bike. I I could walk, I could carpool, I could take the bus. And so I, we interviewed uh, employers in California that had complied with it, and we had data from the, uh, the, the commuter surveys that they're required to file for the Air Quality Management District. And it was fascinating talking to the employers about it. Uh, and people were skeptical. They said it would be a big burden on employers. Yeah. And, and well, the process. The, the that's paperwork, right, all yeah. the paperwork. So I asked them about that. They said, uh, why, no, uh, it's as difficult as uh, uh, changing somebody's number of dependents on a W-2 form. And this is the law in California today. Is <laughs> That's that, right. Is that the case? If the employer offers free parking that they rent mm-hmm. from the landlord, which yes. is just about everything downtown, and you have more than 50 employees – yeah. You have to have more than 50 employees. I don't see why. I, I literally could have been doing this when I worked at College Humor. I didn't know it. I was dri- I had a free parking spot, uh-huh. and I was driving in, and I'm pretty sure they were renting it from the parent company. Uh-huh. So, I, yeah, I could have been getting an extra 250 bucks a month, and that wouldn't – it would almost pay for Ubers for a month, you know, 250 <laughs> bucks. This was before Uber when it was started out. Fair enough. But the, but the state has never publicized the law or enforced it. It's odd. A lot of uh, employers comply if their employers <laughs> if their employees bring it to them. So you have to literally go to your boss and say, I found a weird loophole on a podcast. You uh, owe me 250 bucks a month. I think you, you, may, you, you may get a great uh, bonus from listening to this podcast. <laughs> If anybody does this, please tweet at me or email me and let me know if you if you go to your employer and say, take the parking space away and give me 250 bucks a month. And the employers who, who did it uh, always said that they thought it was a, a very good policy, that they said they always uh, use it in their recruitment, say. Right. Especially one law firm at the, in Century City, it had an environmental section. Apparently every big law firm has environmental mm-hmm. Uh, experts because it's such a big area of litigation in California. But they said a lot of employees said that they really uh, like this offer because it showed that the the law firm is trying to be part of the solution. They're mm-hmm. trying to do something good. You know, they right. thought it made them feel better working for the firm <laughs> if they thought it had that policy, even if they drove to work. 
they thought it was a very good policy. And the employer said that they thought it's fair. They thought it's a good incentive. One employer said, cash works very well for us. <laughs> and I would think, well, cash works very well for anybody. But if you're trying to reduce your carbon footprint for a firm, right. uh, then one way to do it is say, oh, by the way, I'm spending $250 a month for your parking, would you rather have the cash and bike or skateboard? We found two employees who started skateboarding. Uh, <laughs> uh, and now you have electric skateboards. Uh, what well, law firm wouldn't want their lawyers to be skateboarding? <laughs> it's so cool. That's how you get the millennial crowd. <laughs> uh, well, I think that now we have a lot of opportunities ahead of us that uh, we've been doing things uh, – so wrong-headed for so long yes. that is, that's no reason to keep doing it. But I think it shows that by some rather small policy changes, we can make uh, big changes in the results. And, and let, let me ask you this because I, I remember uh, reading that the minimum parking requirements that you talk about, which I think those that's your that's your Moby Dick white whale, right, is to kill the, the minimum parking <laughs> requirements, that those uh, in many cities, at least in L.A., are not based on any research, any science. It's just a force of habit where the city is like, for this kind of building, you need – for the condo, you need two. For the Walt Disney Concert Hall, you need 2,200. They've just got some, some form that's based on nothing. Well, it's based on what's always been there. You yes. know, it's been there since before you were born. I mean, how are you to come along and say to your superiors that this is a bad idea? Or if the if the planning commission say, well, we've had a dispute here in Koreatown about these all these new nail salons. What should be the parking requirement for a nail salon? Mm-hmm. You can't tell them. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> you just give, I, I don't know. Ten. It's always good as ten for yeah. nail salon. You can't tell them that uh, I think they're a bad idea. You should get rid of all minimum parking requirements. <laughs> that would be very foolhardy. So put yourself in the shoes of a young planner who works for the city mm-hmm. and wants to keep their job. Uh, they have to say, well, we surveyed the parking requirements for nail salons in Southern California, and this is what we found. You know, it was eight spaces per thousand square feet, and that's <laughs> what the new one becomes. This is a question I often have about urban planning sort of wonks such as yourself who, who have done the research, right, devoted your life and found this is the optimal way to do things. And then there's the question of actually getting a city – you know, uh, to take the step. So you've been uh, uh, playing this fiddle for, for a long time, very, very vocally. I mean, your work is renowned in the field. I think I think people, uh, you know, it's certainly not uh, suffering from lack of notice, right? Uh, do you see the needle moving on this topic? Or, or, you know, is it starting to become part of common practice in urban planning? Or is it, you know, is, is are there still barriers in the way? Or... Well, I think it's, it's a lot has changed. It's because of people like you and a podcast like this that uh, <laughs> publicizing it. Yeah. That uh, that's that's uh, the little contribution I can make, I suppose. Well, I think it takes journalists to get these ideas across, mm-hmm. and uh, they know how to uh, interest an audience and keep people reading. Uh, and I've been lucky that journalists like you have have picked up on this. Oh, I, I, I oh, I'm so flattered to be called a journalist. <laughs> I, I am, but a but a humble comedian uh, who who reads a couple. <laughs> articles a couple times a year but I, I I hope to be able to promulgate the you know the ideas myself well when, when I've looked at your uh, your ad of ruins everything they are the most serious funny things I've ever seen <laughs> I mean, you look like the, the planning wonk to me <laughs> 
It's true. I, I often wonder how I'm still able to call myself a comedian making a show like this. Because it's true. It is extremely serious comedy. And that's why, by the way, our, the comedy we do on the show is so dumb. Our jokes are the stupidest jokes you can make in comedy because the content is so dry. You know, you sort of have to put them next to each other. That's what it takes to yes. get the things across. It takes somebody who could uh, have a, a – well – it's beyond the podcast. It's the, the videos that you do mm-hmm. that are so wildly imaginative. Thank you. And uh, I think, yes, I, I get invited around uh, to a lot of cities in a lot of countries, and um, I'm kind of an evangelist. You know, I go to these places. Yes. yes. And uh, I think, especially about young people, they they it clicks. You know, it's yes. like they, they sort of feel the key turning in the lock. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I see what we need to do. Yes, and you know, young people don't have that much influence, but they'll grow older and yes. they'll get into positions of authority. And uh, who was it? Uh, the famous physicist said that uh, uh, science marches on feudal by feudal. <laughs> That, I love that. <laughs> that. It isn't that older planners are necessarily changing their mind, yes. but they'll be replaced by people who have, say, <laughs> well, here's this senior person in the field who has been yeah, just uh, completely running down or dissing a major field, and a major tenet in our profession, and nobody has disagreed with them. Nobody, you know, I say that minimum parking requirements, they, they hurt poor people, they damage, city, damage the economy, they hurt the environment, they ruin urban design, they, they, they uh, make good architecture impossible, they pollute the water and the air, <laughs> and uh, so many things like this. And not a single urban planner has said, no, minimum parking requirements don't do this. Yeah, there is simply silence on the other side. Silence and nothing happening. Yes, but uh, say, uh, but then those people die. <laughs> well, that's right. But even even some of them are changing. You know, yes. a, lot, a lot of cities have removed parking requirements downtown, mm-hmm. and Buffalo is on the verge of removing all parking requirements of the city. You know, instead of a long code of pages and pages and pages of, you know, uh, ten parking spaces per thousand square feet for a fast food restaurant with a drive-in window, then it, it, the page of this and the it's just a two-sentence replacement. No all-street parking will be required for. Any use, hmm. uh, it's so much easier to say it. Yes. <laughs> uh, so I I don't know how long it'll be before even smaller cities like Fayetteville, Arkansas, just turned around and said there'll be no off street parking yeah. requirements for any commercial use. So you use. see, you see, hopefully a sea change coming. Uh, in a way that I mean, it seems it seems to be happening in in other urban design topics, such as you know uh, uh, public transportation and and bike lanes and things like that. As cities all across the country are making progress on them, and ho- hopefully in this area as well. I think so, and I think the the, the newest uh, or newest arrow in my quiver was the saying we can't afford them. Mm-hmm. That, I mean, if you say one parking space costs more than three times the net wealth of a minority of this country. You think, well, how can planners trumpet their concern for equality and yes. for the low-income people? Yes. And I mean, we think for, we're a rich country, uh, and we are in many ways, but th- there are these uh, national rankings of, uh, of median net wealth, not for, just for minorities, but the entire population. I think for the U.S., 
the median net wealth per uh, uh, for for all families is something like it's only sixty or seventy thousand dollars. Yeah, but we're number twenty three in the world in this huh. ranking. That Australia is something number one at five hundred thousand dollars. Wow. And Switzerland, all the usual. Iceland is way above us. This is the median net wealth per family. We that half above and half below. Mm-hmm. Uh, that uh, we're nowhere near the top. We're down near where Greece is, <laughs> uh, because uh, it's not the same thing for average wealth. You know, the mean wealth. We're yes. way, we're number five in the world. We're behind Sweden and Switzerland. But, it, but that would be distorted by a number of very very the, uh, wealthy people at the top. But the median, meaning the person in the middle, that because we have so much inequality. Yes, that the people at the bottom, compared to other countries like. Almost any European country, the median net wealth, this is not income, it's net wealth, is lower than 23 other countries. And I think we just can't afford to keep these parking requirements. They cost too much. I love, I love, here's what I love about talking to you is Mm. that uh, you've studied parking. I love that you see all topics through a parking-related lens. That's exactly (laughs) it. That you're zoomed so far out to like... (laughs) Wealth inequality in America, <laughs> we can help solve it by eliminating minimum parking requirements. Well, I think it's that big. I, I think yes. that the, the, the benefits will be so great that uh, it gives you a sense of optimism for the yes. country. That, I mean, we're not like Bangladesh where they, they would have to work for, you know, uh, 24 hours a day for years to get anywhere near the median for the world. All we have to do is stop doing bad things. <laughs> If we stop doing bad things, we have more uh, opportunities than all these other countries because there's all this land that could be built on yes. uh, housing adjacent to uh, to offices that it, I think we could do so much if we weren't dragged down by these parking requirements and that we – if we took advantage of all the possible income from uh, on-street parking yes. and we got rid of all this this uh, anxiety about the fact that I can't find a place to park. I think your phrase, stop doing bad things, <laughs> would be an adequate subtitle for Adam Ruins Everything. <laughs> we need to stop doing bad things. Oh. Uh, let me ask you, uh, this is my last question, um, is I noticed that your URL for your personal webpage is ShoopDog. And that's also how you signed the copy of your book you gave me today, uh-huh. was you signed it ShoopDog. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, how did you come across that nickname? Well, uh, uh, Snoop Dogg comes from Long Beach, as I did too. <laughs> I, I was born, we were born in the same city. That's incredible. Is that the only thing you have in common with Snoop Dogg, or are there other things as well? <laughs> well, uh, he invented the word. Uh, he, he called it uh, Snoop Dogma, and I call my work Shoop Dogma. <laughs> That's so wonderful. Well, it's uh, I think it's it's incredible how how entertaining and fascinating you make this topic and and how you know, again, as I sort of said in the intro before you came in, it sounds like the, when you first hear, like, how could parking possibly be interesting? How could it possibly matter that much? And after talking to you for uh, 50 minutes, you know, it's it's suddenly, yeah, I'm seeing is uh, like this is a major issue in my mind now. It's incredible. And it can be funny. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. Donald. It was really wonderful talking to you. Well, thanks for inviting me. 
Well, thank you once again to Donald Shoup for coming on the show. I hope you guys enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. And that is it for this episode of Adam Ruins Everything, the podcast. We'll be back in two weeks, so please tune in. Our producer is Sharon Morris. If you like the show, please be sure to tell a friend and subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to leave us a rating or comment whenever you subscribe. And again, Adam Ruins Everything, the TV show, is coming back with all new episodes on August 23rd. And you can find clips and full episodes at TrueTV.com slash Adam Ruins Everything and the Watch True TV app. And once again, if you are interested in seeing me tour, please go to AdamConover.net and check out all those tour dates. Thanks again. We'll see you guys in two weeks. Bye. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.